Hey everybody, welcome back to Hints and Guesses. It is good to be back behind the mic. Thanks for listening. Thanks for supporting me. Thanks for sharing this podcast. Thanks for making this more like a conversation over time. For your comments and your questions and your ideas and little messages I get from time to time. and It has been a totally insane month for me. I finished my last Sunday at C3 where I've been teaching for the last six years, a spiritual community in Grand Haven. It was um, emotional and, and I felt a lot of gratitude and it's been an amazing six years really. It's it has felt like too like a conversation. I don't know if any of you follow the the talks that we post from C3, but um, I, I I hope I've made a contribution to their community, and they've certainly made a contribution in my own life. And it's been it's been a kind of dialogue, and I'm just so grateful and um and a bit sad to to let that go and to move into the next chapter of my life, as I said before. And, I'm moving to Georgia. My wife and I have have been living here in Michigan for a long time now, since we moved back from Israel. And and we're moving to Georgia, where my wife's family is from. And this has always been kind of a long-term hope of ours. And it just suddenly felt like the right time. And and it also is big time. It's it's, a... it's such a huge change in, in our life. And so I've been busy dealing with all that stuff and, and selling the house and we're about to close on the house and, and we've already started packing and it's just like, wow. Um, and my son's in college, my oldest daughter is, is married and, and she'll also be moving to Georgia too. And, uh, yeah, pretty quickly here. So, um, yeah, a lot of lot of big things, and and uh, it's it's hard to even know what to say about what's been going on in Israel because I had um, you know two Israel trips planned, one in the end of February and one in October of. 2024, something that I absolutely love doing. I've been leading these pilgrimages for 20 years now, and I learn every time I go there. I love taking people to Israel, and um, and of course we live there, and we have a lot of friends who who live in Israel, and um, a lot of Christian friends, and some Jewish friends, and Palestinian friends. And what happened on October 7th? three weeks ago now was just uh, so horrifying. And, you know, I've just been down in that um, rabbit hole, just watching the news and checking my phone and, you know, and text messages and WhatsApp. And it's been all consuming in a way. And, and, and so it's hard to know what what to say about it or where to even begin. And you know, those of us who who 
have some experience in this part of the world, on one level, we're, we're not surprised. You know, I know right now Israel says they're at war, but they've been at war with Hamas since the 80s, really, and, and with other um, fundamentalist groups, militant groups in, in the West Bank and in Gaza Strip, two different places, of course. Uh, so these kinds of attacks, the nature of them, yeah, it's like um, this is what they are committed to. And so, but the scale was what was so shocking and the vulnerability of, of Israel and, and knowing what's coming, you know, that Israel will um, defend itself and invade and there will be more loss of life and struggle and and just it, it again a glare the glaring reality that this part of the world is um is unsettled and and is in pain so much pain so um and i've been hooked you know angry and and um you know 25 other emotions anger and grief and sadness and blame and finger pointing and preaching and you know just all the cycles that that go on internally and so I I really haven't felt like I've been in a place to have much to to say Um, though I want I want to speak a bit about not so much about what's going on. That's what most people want to know. Like they, they ask me, they send me messages, whatever, like what's going on. And, and it's hard to even know where to begin. And, um, but just to, to open my mouth here a little bit. And my wife and I thought, well, let's, let's just have a conversation starting first with what was it like for us to live there? Not to ignore the so the the political and social realities not to ignore the history but for the time being to avoid you know these the stark ideological fervor of word wars you know i can tell anyone can tell now what quote side you're on by the opening sentence by the opening question by the by the post and the truth is, there are not two sides here. There are many, many sides here. There are many competing stories and hopes and dreams and hurts and wounds. And we owe it to ourselves to slow down and to use some caution here. And so I don't know, we're, we're going to experiment. We're going to have a conversation. I'm, I'm, I'm inviting Mandy, my wife, uh, you know, onto the podcast and, and, what you're going to hear is totally unscripted. We, we, we just said, let's just chat, which is what we've been doing for 25 years in our marriage is talk. And, um, and you're not going to hear a lot of arguments. You know, you might hear some perspectives. That's fine. Um, and you might say, yeah, but what about this? But we're, we're just starting in a real simple place, which is what was it like for us there? And what was kind of eye opening about living there? And, um, and if you like it and let me know, or if you, I suppose if you, if you dislike it, you can also let me know, but, um, we've 
now that we tried this little experiment, we're wondering maybe we should go a little further. And there are other things that are worth explaining and um, talking about and wrestling with concerning this part of the world. And, and, and as you know, it's like the world shrinks in a moment like this. It's the Middle East. Like you think, what, what, what the hell do do? What do, what do I have to say about the Middle East or who cares, you know, but, um, ideology, religion, politics, economy, land, it's like the whole world is shrinking and, um, and dangerous ideologies are on our doorstep, possibilities for well-being and, and hope and dignity are on our doorstep and you and I were born for a time such as this, this. You know, we're born for this, this time, this time with all of its complexity. Um, and yeah, so maybe that's all I want to say right here at the beginning. And I hope you enjoy this, this kind of unscripted uh, conversation. And I'll see you down the road. Okay, we're going to try something new today. I'm here with Mandy, my wife. Hey, welcome to the podcast. Hi. <laughs> um, we, I mean, we've thought about trying to make a podcast together before, and I don't know, we've never really, we've never tried it. So today's going to be an experiment, and I think part of the impulse for this is, is what's going on in Israel. And I've had a lot of people ask me, I don't know, maybe you have too, what's going on? I mean, some people want like basic facts. I don't even know who the parties are here and what's happening and how we got here. And, and, and I, maybe other people are looking for something more like, how do we hold such a thing? And I haven't really known where to start. I've tried, but it's, it's given me a lot of trouble trying mm -hmm. to make a podcast like this. And, and mm -hmm. it, it brings up, you know, all kinds of feelings and emotions and they're hard to sort through. I don't know. I just thought, we just thought, well, let's try to have a conversation about our own experience there. I mean, what else can we say? How else can we even start um, than to sort of speak about our own experience? What are you thinking, feeling? One of our neighbors, um, really sweet lady, she sent me a text and said, it was a couple of weeks ago, she said, I was thinking about you guys. I bet Kent has some great biblical insight about what's happening in Israel, <laughs> which made me laugh and she's sweet, but do you have some great biblical insight? Uh, there's a time for everything, a time to speak, uh, a time to be silent, a time to hate, a time to love, a time for peace, a time for war. That's the, actually the first thing that came into my mind. Um, and that's like, I don't know if you would call that great biblical insight, but that's like the Bible speaking i don't know about this just the reality and of a complicated life mm -hmm. personal social family political life and it's like something shifted we're in a different time right now a different era it feels like i don't know i guess i could hold that question great biblical insight all of the one-liners like start giving you trouble like when i think about jesus and Blessed are the peacemakers. And he also says, sell your cloak and buy a sword. 
So it's like, huh? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. That's, that's probably not helpful right now, but um, I don't know. Well, I think understandably people don't know what to think and they want to know what you think. And I feel really hesitant, first of all, because I'm the world's biggest introvert and I don't know, this is a total experiment. I don't know if we'll put this out, but I feel hesitant to say, you know, to just be one more person out there pontificating about sort of your take or my take on what's happening. I think there's a glut of, of that. And, um, but one thing I can do is share, we can do is share our experience of what it was like to live there for three years. And some of our experiences living there during the Lebanon war, I can share what that was like. So that might be something worth trying to explore. Yeah. And um, I don't know. I probably have more experience in a public setting talking about certain events. <laughs> like I've told stories from there before. And it's like I've, I feel like I don't want to do that. I don't want to repeat something I've already said before. Um I don't know, and just to slow down, what 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 was our experience like there, and how did it shape us, and what did we learn, and I don't know. Do you have do you have a sense of like what comes to mind if someone asks you, well, what was it like in Israel? What what would you say? Where would you even start? Well, we moved to Jerusalem in. It would have been January 2003. So Lucy was just over 18 months old. And we kind of came out of an environment, you know, I would call it a progressive evangelical environment. Uh, I'm, I'm just trying to think. It's hard to think, like, what did you think then? I was in my 20s. I don't really know that I thought a lot about politics in general. I was kind of more focused on nap time and getting laundry done and dinner on the table. Um, it's not that I didn't care about those things, but I would not say that they were foremost in my mind, sort of the geopolitical situation in the Middle East. I moved there. Um, we moved there because you wanted to study and, um, it was kind of an adventure. I was excited about going. I remember, though, um, some people in our church, which was fairly progressive, making some comments about how sad it was that uh, the Israelis were building the wall. And I think at that time it was the wall around the West Bank. Is that right? Yeah, which was kind of snaking right near our neighborhood, basically. So, yeah, the wall, uh, the, the wall between Israel and and the West Bank, yeah. Yeah, I remember hearing that, and I remember being, you know, I I don't know if I even really had a very strong political position at all, but I was 
pretty sympathetic, I would say, to um, Palestinians um, going there. Probably, I would say, left of center, though not very well thought out or articulated. It was just kind of the the vibe. Yeah, the vibe. We yeah. were swimming in, kind of coming out of... That was kind of just getting started and mm-hmm. sort of the evangelical progressive. Social justice was like a brand new word back then. Oh, yeah. to, to me it was. It was, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And um, Oh, and would you agree, maybe this is not so strong for you, but it was for me. It's like, well, my parents were totally pro-Israel. So I, I was kind of like, well, my, surely they, they must be wrong. That was kind of like a general bias I had. Yeah, I think you probably had that a little stronger than me, but yeah, that was definitely in the mix. Um, but just fairly ignorant, I would say. Um, <laughs> just more kind of excited about this adventure we were on. And um, I remember when we first moved there, we used to go into Bethlehem really easily um, because it was like 10, 15 minutes from our house. Yeah. Uh, and but this was before they completed the wall, and um, we used to go into Bethlehem, and there was this amazing chicken restaurant. Mm-hmm. Fabulous, fabulous food. Yeah, and, you could um, just drive there. There was one checkpoint, mm-hmm. and a little bit of barbed wire. But it was kind of it seemed like it was in the middle of a field at that point. Yeah, so this was the West Bank, and there wasn't a lot of fear of just driving over there and coming back. Um, but then. Uh, so when we moved there, this was kind of the height of, uh, when the bus bombings were happening. I don't know if, you know, this was 20 years ago, but there were a lot of bus bombings that happened and Mm -hmm. I kind of was a little concerned, but they seem to be happening like more in Tel Aviv or I think one happened in like kind of a part of Jerusalem where we never, we never hung out or spent any time. An ultra Orthodox neighborhood. Yep. Yep. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's like you could kind of distance yourself. Well, that's happening over there. It's not really happening here. And then um, one night, so I think I'm. I think this was 2003 because we were living in a little apartment near Emekrafayim, which was the main street where we got our groceries and we would stop for coffee and um, hang out. It was a really cool little little part of Jerusalem and it was very close to our apartment and uh, there was one night I had gone to bed early uh, with Lucy and uh, I think you were up studying yeah or trying to write a paper or something yeah Mm -hmm. and we had we lived in this flat and they had it had metal shutters uh, that you would that you could close. And I don't think we had them close. I think it was a warm night. They were like partially open and there was a blast and it shook the, I remember the rattling of the metal shutters. It it shook our apartment and, um, woke me up. And pretty soon after we heard sirens and helicopters and you actually went down there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this was, a little cafe, Cafe Hillel. I think seven people were killed in that, in that bombing. And it I was. I thought it was in the twenties. Thought it was like something like twenty-two. I think that was. Well, now they start to run together, but shortly thereafter, there was also there was a bus bombing right at our intersection, mm-hmm. and that killed twenty people. 
Okay. I thought the one, you know, it's hard to yeah, remember. I mean, it's like you don't even want to remember on one level. Um, but it, it was, you know, th- there was something I remember reading the next day that the suicide bomber was went into the pizza shop. Remember the meter pizza shop? Yeah. And he was turned away. Like, because back then, every single cafe, restaurant, store had an armed guard with uh, a metal detector to try to deter this kind of stuff. And he got turned away for some reason and just went into the cafe and got in somehow. And um, it's like such a, I mean, it's horrific all the way around, but it's kind of the indiscriminate random nature of it, like really just makes it horrifying like yeah it, it's like anyone anywhere doesn't matter who's who's there what they believe um their age it doesn't matter you can get in and then that's it yeah and it it definitely it shook us up it shook me up deeply literally in that we felt the shaking of our actual apartment from the blast but in a much deeper way, this was in, I, I can no longer distance myself from, well, this happens over there, this happens to them, uh, because this was the street where we, like I said, you know, got our groceries, and this was, we had been in this cafe many times, Cafe Hillel, we actually have a poster of this cafe on our wall right here in this room where we're doing this podcast, and um one story I remember because over the next couple of days in the newspapers, I think it was in the Jerusalem Post, uh, they told the stories of of the victims. And there was one man and his daughter. I think the last name was Applebaum. I, mm-hmm. I remember reading about. And it was to be, the next day was to be her wedding. And her father had taken her out that night for a cup of coffee uh, on the night of her wedding. She was to be married the next day. And this really, I still think, yeah, I'll never forget that. It it disturbed me deeply. And um, shortly after that, I I remember I was, I was flying home with Lucy. You were, you were maybe on some kind of a field trip or something. We had a little break and um, I decided to go home. And I remember being in the airplane, you know how you are when you're flying and you kind of look down and everything looks so tiny. And I wanted, I had sort of the impulse, like I wanted to pray, but how could I ask God to protect me and protect my daughter? How, how could I ask that? I, I, ha- I had this, it was this deep feeling of both wanting to pray and not being able to. Um, it, was, it was really the, the cracking open of, you know, something I think that had already begun, but this idea that there was a God out there who, you know, fixed things or prevented things. Um, I just knew that Whoever God was, or whatever God is, God is not 
one who stops terrible things from happening. Hmm. And that was a really, yeah, it was, it was a deep moment for me. Yeah. Yeah. That's profound. And yeah, it was like that. It sort of tore through, I don't know, our worldview and really pushed on things that you're probably right. They were sort of creeping up there anyway, sort of theological questions and ideas about God and images of God. But it, it certainly kind of ripped straight through. Oh, if in a, I don't know, I don't know how to say it other than in a, in a blunt way, if you're, you know, God's going to watch out for his own or something like that. Remember my dad saying that the safest place to be was in God's will. And I just remember like feeling how horrible that line was in light of kind of the events that were happening around us. Well, you know, I feel hesitant to denigrate that even, even that statement that I think there's a sincerity to that, that I don't know. I feel hesitant to kind of call out, um, Hmm. as a gotcha because, you know, but this word safety, what does it mean to be safe? And I think this, this is one of the ideas that is really troubling me. Um, you know, this idea of safe spaces and um, having an opinion that is different than someone else or if someone else, you know, thinks differently or that somehow you're not safe if you're in conversation with them. I don't know. It's, it's something that's really, really troubling when you know people who truly are not safe. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. Are you, are you sort of saying being around terrorism like that, um, (laughs) talk about, talk about being around, around people who are unsafe that are like bent toward annihilation at, at all costs and willing to like, um, sacrifice themselves. I mean, that's like real, um, really unsafe, not, not unsafe words or ideas even, but, um, yeah. And this kind of brings up what you were sort of, sort of, um, you brought up before, which was the construction of the wall, which was just happening. I mean, you you could, we could walk out our apartment every day and see it sort of slowly going up along the, along the hillsides. And, um, yeah, and one of the things that happened after the wall was completed is that the bus bombing stopped. Mm-hmm. And so I would hear some of our friends, sincere, uh, back home, I think well-intentioned, but say things like, it's so terrible that you know the Israelis built that wall. And inside, I'm thinking, yeah, but you don't know what it's like to live in a place where at any moment someone could come in and blow themselves up. Yeah, exactly. And so I feel really hesitant and I feel really concerned when I hear 
people who have no connection to Israel. They have no connection to the kind of lives that Israelis live are telling them how they need to respond. Hmm. It's, it, it's kind of, it makes me nauseated to be honest. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's one of the perplexing questions that I don't know the Jewish, well, definitely the state of Israel is just in constant, a constant wrestling match with how do you live next to someone who's, I don't know, committed to your annihilation and doesn't believe you have the right to exist. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is kind of an odd question, but it's, and I'm not even sure how to ask it, but, um, like, it, was there a part of you that just wanted to get out when we were there? Like, what was your, what was your feeling like? Hmm. Uh, there were moments, I think, um, well, I actually get confused about the timeline, but there was a point at which I think this had to do with Saddam Hussein. You have to correct me. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. The the Iraq war. Yes. Mm -hmm. So the Iraq war was kicking off. Yeah, <laughs> so sorry. It was starting. Um, Shock and awe. Was, yeah, yeah. was what they called it at the time. So we were living in Israel at the time, and there was concern that the Iraqis, right, had mm -hmm. chemical weapons and were going to use them. I think they threatened to use them. Yeah. Um, they, they threatened to send Scud missiles over, which they had done in the first Gulf War. Mm -hmm. In Israel. And so the state of Israel issued gas masks for um, everyone who was there, including people who were there on visas like us. And um, we had to go and stand in line uh, to get a gas mask for our daughter, who was two at the time. In the mall of all places. Yeah, it was really bizarre. And this gas mask um, is so disturbing to look at because it's like, um, it's kind of like a bubble. Uh, it goes over, you know, the head of the toddler and because they obviously can't wear, you know, something that would go around their face. And it has a little screw in hole for a bottle. And I looked at that. Yeah, and I definitely had a moment of what the hell are we doing here? This is this is crazy. But it was mixed because um, we also went to a church uh, in Jerusalem and they kind of made light of it. Like, oh, are you guys scared? Like, are, are you guys are you guys taking your gas masks with you? Um, and so I didn't really know how to feel. Um, I, I didn't know what to think. I, I didn't know how to feel. There, there was. I remember, the, the order was given. I don't know if that's the right word. That we should tape up our windows. Oh yeah, they. Yeah, yeah. So okay. we used duct tape and plastic. Nothing says protection like duct tape and plastic on windows. Yeah. Well, it was. I mean, it was totally weird. I mean, you felt like so vulnerable. Yeah, but we taped our windows up. Yeah. And I remember like kind of also being teased um, by people in the church we went to, like, oh, are you guys taking this seriously? And I didn't I didn't know what to think. I was kind of clueless. Um, 
you know, and obviously I was also talking to my parents and they were very concerned. Um, what are you doing there? So yeah, I have moments of wanting to leave. Um, Mm-hmm. Definitely. I think that like yeah, it, the confidence, I mean, that's part of one of the s- sort of the things I've been thinking about since October 7th, since the recent massacre was just um, the way in which it's dangerous and you also just have to live your life. Like every Israeli knows this, like, it's dangerous and I'm still going to go to the post office and, and, and you're not sure how much precaution to take. And, and like, I think some of our friends who were, you know, just lived there were a lot uh, less concerned than, than we were. But there's also this fear that you don't really know. No one knows. Even the people who were supremely confident, nothing's going to happen. You just, you live, you live in a part of the world where anything can happen, including the cafe that you, regularly go to you know be exploded so yeah so i to be habituated to that kind of anything could happen at any time it it was shocking actually that you know it's like you said it's this great act of courage to just get on with life like going to the grocery store doing the little daily things that you need to do to go about your life it's like an act for the Israelis of defiance mm-hmm. in the face of that kind of terror. I'm not going to give it the final say. Mm. I'm not going to let this dictate the way that I, you know, go about my day. I'm going to go about my day. And there's something I really admire about that. The Israelis are extremely, I, I feel like wrong painting with two broad brushstrokes, but the people that I met, the people that I observed, they have a strength that I I rarely observed. Mm-hmm. Certainly admire, yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking about, we have a mutual friend who said that his 80-year-old father right now, who lives way up north, is down south in these kibbutzim that were attacked, picking fruit, because there's nobody there to pick the fruit. And it's just like, like, oh, okay. I don't know. That's the kind of like courage. I, I agree that that I found quite inspiring. And I remember, um, particularly our, our Jewish friends, that there was a common theme, and I, I guess it it that it, it's hard to to um, you can hear it, but there's a difference between hearing it and feeling it. And they would say things like, "Well, you have to understand, we're surrounded by our enemies." I mean, Lebanon, Jordan, Syria, Egypt, Iraq, Iran, it just, and, and our own neighbors, our own Palestinian neighbors, and in the West Bank, and in the Gaza Strip, and yes, they're going on with life, but there's this, like, this low-level um, dis-ease all the time, and well, I don't know if that's true for them. It was true for me. I had a low level, like definitely hypervigilance, kind of doing the scan of, we would go into a, a coffee shop, let's say, post some of these bus bombings, and you'd see like like a post or a pole or something in the coffee shop. And I remember having a thought like, 
if we sit by this pole and a suicide bomber comes into this coffee shop, like, will it fall on us or would it protect us like from the blast? And then like that part of you that's kind of more the observer is like, this is not a sane thought. Like how, how do you live constantly, um, making a decision where to sit in a cafe based on if someone were to come in here and blow this thing up, is there, is there a safer place for me to sit? That's insane. Those are the kinds of thoughts that I was having. And I, I can't speak for Israelis because it's like you said, they, I don't think they're callous, but there's a level of adjustment to the terror that they live with, they live surrounded by. I remember once, didn't you ask, we have, we have a friend who's married to a Palestinian Christian. He speaks several languages, but he speaks Arabic and Hebrew. And weren't you walking with him one day and you asked him what they were saying? Yeah. I just got curious one day. Um, this is during Friday prayers. So, uh, in, in Islam, you have the uh, Friday prayers that people attend and then you have the sermon and that comes over the loudspeakers too. And I think we were in Beit Jala or something like outside of Bethlehem. And I just wondered, Hey, what is the, <laughs> what is the Imam saying? And he looked at me for a second and he said, death, death, death to the Jews, push them all into the sea. And I don't, I don't know, for some reason it's like, Yeah, it makes me feel emotional because it's like, God, um, the whole week that's centered around this religious gathering of prayer and the sermon is drive them into the sea. And it just so alarmed me. Like I, I, I could even, f I felt like less safe in that moment. Oh, that's what's being said. And it was kind of a wake up call too, because, um, I was, you know, studying compared religion and all this kind of stuff. And sometimes you, you don't want to, I was all fine looking at the fundamentalist aspects of my own religion and like picking that apart. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's like, you want to give credit like, oh, well, Islam is a, you know, it's a, it's a huge, uh, global faith tradition. And, and I don't want to, um, heap on it cliches and platitudes and, or tear it apart. But that was really disturbing to me that, uh, there was a kind of fundamentalism here that was being amped up. And this was not a, a, a sermon of peace. This was a sermon of that, that phrase, push them into the sea or from the river to the sea was taken quite literally. Like the Jews do not have the right to be here on the land period. And there will come a day when they'll all be wiped out. And I don't know, that was like, that was alarming to me. Yeah, I don't think people even believe you. I don't, first of all, I don't think they know what they're saying. If they do, I, maybe they do. I don't think they know what they're saying when they chant. You know, it sounds like something that would be on a Hallmark greeting card. From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. I don't, I don't think people believe you or believe me when I say, you know what, that is a literal reference to the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. It, it doesn't mean they just want to live free. It means 
They do not want the state of Israel to exist. Yeah. That is how they will be, quote, free. Mm-hmm. No Jews, no infidels, no Westerners. This is a part of their belief system. Mm-hmm. And that's hard to look at and call out. And does it represent all Palestinians? No. I mean, I have no problem saying that. But it's contagious. And it seems to be growing in a way. That's the the kind of scary thing about Hamas. So another thing that happened when we were there, 2005, is that Ariel Sharon um, withdrew all Israelis from the Gaza Strip. So there were 21 settlements there, I think. And... Um, he literally went in with the army and pulled people out of their own bedrooms and tore down all the settlements, even dug up Jewish graves and said, okay, let's try. I don't know what he was saying really, but let's try something new where we don't have settlements and Palestinians all mixed up together. Fine. You rule the Gaza Strip and we'll put a wall and a border between us. And the next thing that happened was Hamas was elected, and it, and that's strange. That's like okay, um, free to do what? And and the move was elect a terrorist organization that has vowed the destruction and annihilation of Jewish people. So, yeah, and like and to be clear. I think this is why I have so much trouble because the facts don't seem to matter in <laughs> in this kind of hyped up contagion of I I don't even know what to call it. I struggle for words, you know, I, these things I'm you're seeing on campus campuses around the country particularly are so disturbing. Yeah. Don't you think this is true too that um uh well <laughs> Jews and Palestinians are like giant projection magnets. Like people project onto Jews all kinds of things and people project onto Palestinians all kinds of things. And it's like, especially for the Palestinians, they're like pawns, even even for the larger Arab world. Like how much how much does the larger Arab world really care for ordinary Palestinians when, I don't know, when they seem to be using them as pawns to to push against what they call the Zionist regime. I mean, so they're sort of left out in the dark from their own people, not to mention the tensions with, with, with Israelis. Yes, and the Jewish people, I think there's a sector of the extreme religious right that are obsessed with end times kind of prophecy, and they, you know... The evangelicals love the Jews, but mm. do they? Why do they love the Jews? Yeah, because <laughs> they're also pawns in some kind of bizarre interpretation of Revelation. Yeah, where Jesus is going to come down and then convert all the Jews and, I don't know, burn everybody else up. Yeah, I agree with you yeah. that both the Israelis and the people, the Palestinian people are giant symbols. Mm-hmm. And that's another thing that is deeply troubling me is the Oh, what's the word for it? Um, conflation? Con- yeah, conflation of issues. Mm. Like I saw, I mean, I think everyone's seen these signs now, but um, there was one that really confused me. It said reproductive rights are 
Palestinian rights. It's like, what does that even mean? <laughs> yeah, this is conflation, exactly. And the list goes on and on for those things. Yeah, queers for Palestine. Yeah, yeah. Or, um, or the, 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 probably the darkest one was the Black Lives Matter with the paraglider. Yeah, that was... You know, as if they're freedom fighters or... Um, yeah, to use that image, which is a vehicle of torture and terror for 1,300 people, to use that as a symbol of freedom, I, that was one of the most shocking, I mean, as terrible, as awful as all of those images were coming out of the kibbutzim and that field where those kids were having a concert purportedly for peace um, and were slaughtered. I think that the Chicago chapter of the Black Lives Matter um, using the paraglider symbol for Black Lives Matter, I, I'm so disturbed by that. Mm. I don't even know what to say. It's shocking. Yeah, it is shocking. And this like an anti-colonial, anti-Western, whoever is the oppressor now, it seems to be, should be violently overthrown and celebrated is like, that's, that's kind of, that's dark. That's dark. And also, I think, I mean, it's, it's also wrong. It's also ahistorical. I mean, I don't, I don't want to turn this into a giant history lesson, but I mean, even like decolonization, returning lands back to, um, back to native people so they can self-rule. Well, that would be the Jews. And so that's like so much irony here. I know all those cringy, like, ceremonies and things you go to where it's like we bow to the you know historic peoples who were here before us you know if they were to do that they would have to bow to you know king the capital of king david's jerusalem yeah, i mean this is seriously it's laughable it's a joke and, and i think that's what what is the most disturbing thing to me is reality doesn't matter mm. The truth of what's happening, the history of what's happening, it doesn't matter. If you don't like the narrative, you get to reject it or construct your own. And this is insane. Yeah. And that's actually like the, I mean, it's also a, a news problem too, because anything that doesn't fit the narrative is called fake or disinformation or and so you're not even sure where to even start looking. It's any only things that affirm the narrative are the things that, uh, I don't know, like you said. Well, um, I don't know what else sort of feels important at the moment. Have you found anything helpful? I mean, I've been asking myself that question. Has anything, have you found anything helpful? Like, well, I know what definitely isn't helpful, and I speak for myself, is the constant doom scrolling on Twitter, having the television on at all times, um, as concerned as, as I am for our friends, particularly 
those who have kids the same age as our kids who are serving in the IDF and are waiting to go into Gaza. Um, I'm terribly concerned about them. Uh, but it's not good for me to con to constantly scroll, and I have been, um, this endless stream of outrage and terror. I, I have to find my balance in that. I get tipped over. And um, <laughs> one thing that's helped, I think, that we've been doing the last couple Friday nights, and we used to do this when we lived in, in Israel because everyone does this because all restaurants are closed on Friday and um, you have a Friday night dinner with your family. And for the Israelis, that's, you know, Shabbat. That's the beginning of Shabbat. And um, we used to do this quite a lot. And even after we moved back to the States, we would do it fairly regularly. But since this war broke out, we started doing that again. And um, sitting down and having dinner with your family and lighting some candles and making a beautiful table and saying some ancient prayers, um, it, it helps me. And I saw, I saw this, I think it was outside of a museum in Tel Aviv. They had a like a huge table set, um, a Shabbat table set for the hostages. They had the same number of hostages. They were the chairs were empty, of course, but it was this beautiful symbol for to hold in our hearts all of those who can't celebrate with their families. And so, I think I have. We have to choose to go on about our lives. We have to choose to to do the daily things like going to the grocery store and making a plan for the week and keeping appointments, um, to not give in to despair, um, to not give this darkness a say in our day. Um, those are things that I'm, I'm trying to work with myself on. Um, not always successful. Yeah. Well, I was coming back to the, the biblical insights question because what occurred to me is like that line from Moses, I set before you life and death, and I'll choose life. And I don't know, that's... I feel the kind of depth of... of depth of courage required to do, to do such a thing, to choose life. Yeah, my son yesterday, who's away at college, is studying music, and he, um, it's a cool music program. They have to be, they have to have a primary instrument, which for him is piano, a secondary instrument, which is guitar, and then they have to be in an ensemble, and so he's in a choir, and he's never sung in a choir before, and uh, yesterday he sent me an audio recording of this choral piece that that he's singing and um he was so excited about it he was like listen to the harmony mom and it made me cry because i think music harmony um 
those are the things that we need to be doing to remind ourselves of the beauty that is possible. Um, I think for me, it's, it's beauty that will save us. <laughs> I saw this. I love Barry Weiss. She's one of the only people that I think is, I shouldn't say that, but one of the few people that I think is really worth listening to. I, I recommend reading the free press. Um, I've appreciated her thoughts and the contributors to the free press, but she had this article. I just saw it. It said hate on our doorstep. And she was talking about, um, there were some anti-Semitic. Well, I think it was graffiti or something. Yeah. Graffiti yeah. scrolled on her offices and there is hate on our doorstep, but there's also beauty. And I think, and truth and we have to look for that that's what helps me um i need to i am flooded right now with the hate on our doorstep and i need to kind of move away from that what about you what have you found helpful in these recent weeks well I think if you would have asked me this question before you answered it, I may have listed like, I don't know, a few things that I read or people that I respect or, but I'm, I'm quite moved by what you were saying about Shabbat. Like, let's sit down and have a meal and light some candles. And that has been very helpful. And I think also just sending text messages to friends over there just that we're thinking and, and praying for you and that we're with you. And I mean, even like that, like our friend sent us a picture of his two kids, you know, kids that our kids know in their IDF uniforms. And it's like, um, I don't know. It, it, it helps you hold the thread of, of humanity here. And, and we also decided to, to donate to, to something just to get out of the, um, I don't know, the ideas vortex or the, the posting frenzy, I guess, or the latest information coming through Twitter just to take some action I think have, has, has been helpful to me at least a little bit. Here's a question. Do you think that knowing the historical context, and that's certainly it's kind of your area of, <laughs> of expertise, the, the historical context of the land of Israel, do you think it's helpful to know the historical context or do you think it's not helpful? And yeah. the reason I ask, well, I think a lot of people ask that question but there's this element, I don't know, I'm trying to work it out in my head. It's helpful and not helpful at the same time. And I don't know what I think about that because it almost feels like the truth, everyone has their version, you know, their little spin cycle of the story. And just the truth, just the historical truth of what's going on 
what has gone on, does it matter? Oh, jeez. Um, it matters. And we're still left with the reality on the ground. Okay. Multiple people groups, Israeli Arabs, Israeli Arab Christians, Jews, Jews from different parts of the world, Jews that don't even believe in God, um, different kinds of Palestinian groups, different kinds of factions inside um, Islam. They're, the reality on the ground is, is extremely complicated. And I think history, it would be impossible for me to say it doesn't matter. Um, I think maybe that's another podcast for another time. I think it, it matters in the sense of story and narrative and connection to the land. I mean, there's almost no difference between religion, spirituality, and the actual geography. The geography shapes our own religion and spirituality. And so that con that conversation, who was here and why, I think does matter. It, it doesn't exactly give us, um, it doesn't, point the compass in the in the obvious direction of what to do now that that's where i kind of i find the limits of history i do think telling stories and listening to the many sides the many different groups here and their own experience in the land really does matter um and and first of all it matters on the level of there's just so much bullshit right now coming through the internet and assumptions that people are making and about um you know, phrases like stolen land and um, apartheid, which is applying a completely different historical context to what's going on right now. These are very problematic and they, they should be sorted through. And you need history as, as one of the, the arrows in the quiver, at least in my opinion, if you're going to face it. Um, but it still leaves us with the very modern and contemporary problem, which is there is a, a whole... Um, non-monolithic <laughs> that sounds too fancy but just like a there's a hodgepodge of people here and ideas and they're not going anywhere so um how do we look at that so i don't know i think yeah history does matter maybe that's another conversation for another time um actually it reminded me of something that esther perel said so if you know esther perel she's um she's dedicated her life to to helping people, mostly with questions around intimacy, but maybe I could translate in that into vulnerability, being vulnerable um, between human beings. Mm -hmm. And she's, she does that out of a deep understanding of the traumas and wounds that we carry. She's the daughter of Holocaust survivors. She lived in Israel in a kibbutz. She speaks seven languages. She's empathetic to the to the human nature um, of really two traumatized people groups living next to one another. Anyway, she, she had a post of all these cautions, like, be careful. Mm -hmm. And first of all, I found it very helpful to answer your question. Her post was very helpful. Um, but she said, be careful not to collapse history and context into narrow interpretation. Mm -hmm. And that's what you see almost across the board. 
on any side here and on the multiple angles here. It's like, let's collapse everything into the narrow interpretation that already confirms my bias, that already confirms my worldview and the way I see things. And that is dangerous, I mean, I'd say. Um, I don't know. So a little caution maybe there is is in order. Yeah, I found her post really helpful too. What else? Do you remember some of the other? Yeah. Um, she had a, a series of be carefuls. Yeah, she said be careful to separate people from the policies of their government. And in my view, that applies to the policies of the Palestinian Authority, the, pol- the policies of Hamas and Islamic Jihad, and the policies of the Israeli government, which is very complicated. There are 37 parties, including, or maybe more now, I don't know, but um, including Arab parties. And, and also then there's the concerns of the IDF itself. So, and she also said, be careful to separate um, the, the actions of terrorists from uh, the people who live among them. And right. to me, that's profound. It's like, yeah, if you are losing your thread of human connection, if you can't feel empathy for the civilians who are dying in Gaza mm-hmm. and who will die in the coming days, and you are losing your thread of humanity and care and concern if you cannot feel the deep grief of the Israeli people and those and the people who lived in the kibbutzim, but the entire sort of collective Jewish uh, consciousness, if you will. So I don't know. May, um, I, th- I I'm I'm thinking of the end of that post, which she says. Um, uh, She says, don't lose touch with the parts of yourself that you need most. Compassion, Mm -hmm. which I I mean, I I take that in like the literal meaning of it, to feel with. Like, Mm -hmm. don't lose compassion, to feel with. And don't lose your humanity. I'm adding your shared humanity, but I think don't lose your humanity. And don't lose your care. And, um, because I, I think that last line, don't lose your care is like, I can, sometimes I can feel that rising up. Like, I don't know if it's in the form of just callousness or shutting down, or even, I don't know if I start to get into the, who do I need to blame here? Um, I don't know. I'm starting to lose that, that thread. And, and I, I don't know. So I found that helpful. I found her, her invitation to slow down to not lose the shared humanity, to not be deeply concerned about the many civilians and children that are involved in this, this um, long conflict. I don't know, does this feel like a good place to, I don't know, hit the pause button? On yeah. Our, yeah. Sounds good. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs>